To mark Independent Bookshop Week, we are delighted to have author, broadcaster and former pop star, the Reverend Richard Coles, with us on the How To Be 60 podcast. Regret? He has a few that might surprise you. The regret I feel most pressing now is that I didn't have more sex when I was in my 20s. And I'm wondering how to be 60, it's scaring the shit out of me. Hello chums, if I may be so bold, it's time for another look at life beyond the big 6-0 with me Kay Adams and the hinge to my bracket, Karen McKenzie. How dothy, how is life on Golden Pond? Does that mean after in retirement? <laughs> I've never seen that film, but actually... Was that Catherine Hepburn? I've seen, I've never seen it. Oh, you've never seen it? No. Yeah, no. on Golden Pond. Yeah, I've heard about very, it. Very, very old. Yes, yes, yes. Very, very old. Well, thank yes. you. <laughs> right, so the last time I left here, I got absolutely bloody drenched. Oh my God, the water was starting off the ground and I got home and, and as I had on... Um, black jeans and they look like seal skin do you know what I mean oh. and then I got home and it was like taking off a diving suit oh. I had to peel it That's off me oh feeling. god oh. my shoes are still on the heater oh, oh god it was straight like off chicken off spanks ah never Isn't worn it? them either but I can imagine spanks? don't need to no, well, you don't actually. You're rather trim. Rather trim. <laughs> I don't wear them either. They cut off your circulation. You've obviously tried them. Well, I have. You know, if you work on a programme like Loose Women, you have no option but to try. Right, it's a very bizarre it's in thing. the contract. Uh, it's not in the contract, no. But, well, you're very self-conscious on television. Every bulge is very, very obvious. But yeah. I have to say I don't tend to wear them. I have to say that was a really tedious photograph that you sent me which, this week. Which one would that be? You know, the one with some weeds and some straw. I mean, oh my God, that's my really healthy strawberry plants. <laughs> Good darling, they don't grow in Waitrose, you know. They actually <laughs> grow on the ground. Yeah, but it looked really professional with the straw around them. You know what the straw's for? No, I've no idea. Well, it's to, it's to keep the strawberries off the the wet ground and to try and keep the slugs away from them. Oh, how very good! Yes, very yes. maybe you could very bring in some strawberries next yeah, time. Yeah, <laughs> So there's nothing more exciting happening in uh, retirement land. Oh well, well, sorry, this sounds like a moan. Each year, I buy a couple of pairs of shoes, a pair of sandals, a pair of trainers. Right, and I am so boring, but they're well, from the see, same. There's nothing more exciting happening in retirement <laughs> land, and you start. I love the that. style, right? Not the same. It's just the same makes, and uh, bought the sandals, same size. Bought the trainers, same size, but different colours, obviously. Uh, the sandals came. The absolute the strap ripped on the first day. My first day out. Dreadful quality. Uh, I didn't work, can I just say? And uh, the trainers. Very trendy Japanese ones. They're too small. Ah, see that? Do you know why that is? Why? Your feet get bigger as you get older. They don't after They do, they do. Are you still getting bigger then? (laughs) No, no, mine have actually got smaller, so I'm obviously regressing. Um, But your feet get smaller. Along with your back. Yeah. Bending over. Your nose gets bigger, your earlobes get bigger, everything gets bigger. It doesn't get doesn't sound do. even. Your feet get bigger as you get older. They do, they expand. Well, they must stop at a certain age. <laughs> well, yeah, I suppose so. Nobody's ever lived that long. 90-year-olds <laughs> going around looking like penguins. <laughs> it's funny you saying about buying that because my friend uh, Ross, he was telling me that he brought this really good quality coat 
And he was trying to justify the money. He'd obviously spent a lot of money on this coat. Nice. Um, and uh, he said, it's, it's really, it's going to be worth it. I know it's a bit more than you would usually oh, pay gosh. for a coat, but it's really good quality. Uh-huh. He says, it's absolutely, it is a coat for life. And then he kind of paused and he thought, fuck, <laughs> this probably is a coat for life. <laughs> this coat will probably outlive me. And we both we were out for dinner and we both just kind of stopped, stopped in our tracks and, and thought, thought yes. we are now buying clothes that, that will probably live longer than we do. Oh my god. Was that a camel coat? Um no, it was a very, very smart raincoat, you know, one of those Burberry type jobs. Right. But definitely will then. there will be somebody in twenty years' time clearing out his wardrobe going Oh, this coat is in perfect condition. <laughs> Somebody could get the better of yes, that. Yes, this is not going to the charity shop. This will go in my bag. Imagine being outlived oh, by a bloody no. coat. That is where we are. That is where we are. It is if you buy decent clothes. Yeah. Now, listen, I'm nervous cited for this week's guest. Oh, um, that? Because it's the Reverend Richard Coles, yeah. broadcaster, now author, of course, his second book uh, just, uh, just about to come out. Um, and he's a big brain. He's a really big brain. And, you know, I'm excited. What did you say? I said that's intimidating. That is intimidating, yeah. is it? Do you think so? I must say, whenever we do have a very conspicuously clever guest, I do worry about them listening to our 10 minutes of chuntering. Well, there's, I think, Richard's well, that's why I sent He's a little. Hang on, stand by. <laughs> oh, no, stand by. Quick, be clever, be clever. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, yes, right. Quickly, quickly, quickly. Say something um, erudite. Say something intelligent. Erudite. Yes. yes. Well, he—he he is. I mean, as I say, I am excited about Richard coming on because I've wanted him to come on for a while. But yes, I am nervous because he is a bit of an intellectual. And in, in fact, he might even be a whole intellectual, not just a bit of an intellectual. He's is that a joke? Yeah, that was a joke. Mm-hmm. See, that was a clever joke. I was hoping it would appeal to us. This is the. This is the. Uh, it's going to be a bar. <laughs> God, he's kind of Stephen Fry clever. Listen, I don't want you to be trying too hard, Kay, because that, that shows. Do you think I'm embarrassing oh, when I try to? Well, hard? slightly. Am I? Slightly. Do you worry about it when we've got a clever guest? Uh, no, I just open my mouth. Do you not think you should? What, open my mouth? No, no, worry about it when we've got a clever guest. Mm, no, it's your name that's on it again. I just keep <laughs> coming back to that. It's your podcast. It's a time. There is a slight chance of, of yes. jeopardy. Yeah. You just go, oh, well, it's your name on it. I don't it's give the, a fuck. I turn I mean, up here. to teamwork? What happened to a cup of tea? What happened to a wee French fancy? There's nothing here. I turn up, there's hee-haw. I even take my own flaming tea bag. What? And you've not stopped me. What happened to a wee French fancy? I think I'm going to get that on a t-shirt. I like the sound of that. He's very good on Twitter, Richard Cole. I know that you're you're not on Twitter. Um no need to complain. But yeah, he's he's very he's very intellectual on Twitter. You you could skip over those ones. You could because he's also <laughs> You say I wouldn't understand them over my head. You're probably right, actually. He's also very funny and right. I saw one that he did recently which really appealed to me. He said, I'm now so old and fat that getting on a bar stool is like doing the jump. Oh God. <laughs> oh, you can see that, can't you? Yes. Oh. And the other tweet I really liked from Richard was, I'm dining with my niece in Nottingham who berates me for stale complacency. Mm-hmm. Christ, Uncle Tricky, if your younger self could see you now. <laughs> so I'm going to be interested to ask him about that. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, you're going to have something in common with uh, the Reverend Richard Coles because I believe you had a sign from above earlier this week. Do you mean the seagull? Not the seagull, the pigeon shitting yeah. on my head. Yeah. Oh, God, I could not. I just heard it. And looked down and it flopped onto the ground. And then Trisha, who I was with, 
was just a bit rolling on the ground laughing. Oh no, it was Louise. It was Louise rolling on the ground laughing. Oh God. And she was like, don't touch it, don't touch it. And she, all I had was poo bags. I know. And, and, and you actually sent me a picture of you with... I thought, why not? The thing is, with your grey hair, you'd have got away with it. It you was could, black. You could have combed that in. No, no, I had to go to Pollock Sorry. House and stick my head under the tap. And this woman came in and then I had to explain to her. I felt justified. <laughs> you know, if I looked at my WhatsApp photographs from you, it would be a mixture of plants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Homemade gin. Yeah, oh yeah. Bird shit. Oh, yeah. You in a dodgy bra and vibrators. I mean, definitely. Very eclectic mix, I would say. There you But that's supposed to be good luck. My mum always said that if a pigeon shot on you, it was good luck. She was very, very suspicious, my mum. It drove me mad. Well, do you know what? I was actually going to put a lottery thing on that night, but I don't even know how to do that, so I didn't. I actually kind of forgot as well. Yeah. So your mum was superstitious. I know, it's funny. Yeah, she was superstitious and I wasn't. And I think that's a real youth thing, you think... I don't know. I, I thought superstition was very irritating when I was young. And my mum always had the thing about magpies. Lots of people have the thing about magpies, don't they? What is that? One for something, two for joy? One for sorrow, two for yeah. joy. And the day my mum died, right? And I know this is bonkers. You know, it's funny. Ooh, I know what's it's coming? Funny. Well, the day my mum died, so she had, um, this has taken a dark turn, hasn't it? So she had been more or less in a coma for two weeks. And my brother and I had sat next to her, you know, on rota for the two weeks. And like I was just done in, you mm-hmm. know. I mean, it's yeah. just such a punishing yep. experience. And I, I was sitting in my living room, staring at the mm-hmm. wall. I was empty, mm-hmm. um, and suddenly I heard this flutter, and it was a magpie that just flew over the top of my head. Now it had come in downstairs because of we have a downstairs. Oh it had come God. up it was a funny little stair in the house over my head, and it was in the house. Now, a, I'm terrified of birds. I really don't like birds. Well, certainly inside. It was a magpie. I just looked at it and I screamed. Oh my God. And my mum died that night. Now, I know that is mad, uh-huh. but I kind of choose to believe it in a funny kind of way. Oh, let's put the hairs in my arms up. And I know oh, I'm choosing God. to believe it. Because you want to. And, and if, if I heard myself saying this 30 years ago, I would say, oh, shut up, you stupid old bat. Right. It's but funny that, isn't it? Mm. It is odd, isn't it? It's like this ring that I wear. This is the, the ring that my mum was wearing when she died that I sat and looked at for those two weeks. It looks a bit loose key. I know, I know. And it slips off. And when it slips off, I think it's because she's talking to me. Oh, is that right? Yeah. God, you are losing it, aren't you? I am. I'm a losing it. Yeah. That ring will be okay once your arthritis kicks in. You'll not get it off then. <laughs> I'll say thanks, mum. You've given me swollen knuckles. <laughs> anyway, shall we have our email of the week and then we'll speak yes. to Richard? Yes. <laughs> Right. The email of the week this week is from Arlene, who's lived in the States since 2004. She is Arlene. They can't say Arlene without saying Arlene. Well, well, she's actually from the UK. Um, she describes 55 as a third age. She'd been married for 33 years with two children, two wonderful grandchildren, still working full time as a nurse after 33 years. And what? she's still kind of enjoying it. So there's an Americanism. <laughs> I've gone for a bit of a higher brow email this week in honour of the Reverend Richard Coles. God, you um, really are intimidated, aren't you? Yeah, I get very intimidated by intellect. Oh. I really do. Anyway, here we go. Arlene, I think it is so important for us to have purpose and a feeling of self-worth in life. Often as we age, there's a fear that we will lose control or have feelings of inadequacy. Well, that's me. Whether it be physically, intellectually or emotionally. <laughs> 
For some folks, the money, status and power are difficult to let go of. But now I see that striving to advance my career and making more money is not as important as it once was to be. I am going through this epiphany as well. You do not want to be that hamster on a wheel at 60. Stop the wheel. Get off. Smell the roses. Spend time with your family. Enjoy, we're going into capital letters now. Enjoy the simple thing. I feel I want a gospel choir here. This is really belting, isn't it? Can you clap? I hear you, Sister Arlene. Enjoy the simple things. So my late 40s were fantastic years. Turning 50 was my best year. I became physically fitter than I had ever been, completing right. an Ironman race. Oh, my God. Jesus, respect. My vision for turning 60 is that it will be just another chapter in my life, just like getting married, having children, moving careers. We have to adapt and embrace it. I see turning 60 as an aha moment. Aha. What's aha? aha? Acceptance. All right. Happiness. Aha. And attitude. Positive wow. attitude. Good, good feeling. Healthy That's regards excellent. from Arlene. Amen. <laughs> Arlene. Arlene, darling. There you yes. go. Darling, Arlene. Arlene. Yeah, go. You are the email of the week. That's pretty um, amazing. Yeah. Podcast at hdb60.com is the email address. Your words of wisdom for life beyond the big six. So, what challenges has it thrown you? How are you tackling it? What are you loving? What is testing you? Get in touch. And uh, we will speak to the very, 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 very clever Reverend Richard Coles straight after this. Hi, Richard. Are you casually flicking through the complete works of Aristotle or <laughs> reciting Gregorian chants in your head? Or I've been watching TikToks of people walking into lampposts. <laughs> I love this idea that I'm this Socratic figure somewhere in East Sussex thinking beautiful thoughts. I've been to the tip this morning, mm-hmm. had Nando's, and then I was watching TikTok, Kay. Oh. What did you take to the tip? Garden waste. Oh, God. I've got a brilliant new gardener called Ben, and he sets about things like Napoleon, the conquest of Europe. <laughs> but um, So there's bags and bags of stuff, and every week I take it to the tip, and I feel... Yeah, I've been to yeah. the tip. And I reward myself with the Nando's. But see, there you go. You slipped a little intellectual reference into gardening there. <laughs> you, you can't <laughs> help yourself, Bridget. It's you. It's the person you are. I had no clue I'm what you seeing. meant. <laughs> I'm as thick as... I'm, I mean, I think I busked it a little bit with the appearance of cleverness. But I think I'm clever enough to know what a clever person is and that I'm not one of them. And also, as I've got older, I've got thicker and thicker. Do you think so? Yeah. I worry about Better that. Better some things, but... Speed and sort of computational power has definitely diminished. When do you think it started to go? I am definitely 45. not smart. At 45? That's quite young, Everything isn't for it? me went south after 45. I gave up smoking, which is a good thing. Um, but then I sort of got porky and also dull. Oh, dear. And at what point dull. did you pinpoint age, uh, you know, 45 as the age of decline? Mm-hmm. I think what happens is, is just, you know, you're reading in the newspapers about young people and there comes the day when you realise that there's no way of glossing this. It's not you they're talking about. <laughs> no. And then it's Team Saga. You know, you get adverts for things. Yeah. Then it's free colonoscopies from your local hospital and stool samples. Mm-hmm. And now it's I'm on the threshold of orthopaedic meltdown. Oh, this is bad stuff. But listen, I don't want to be negative because actually, I am loving my sixties. That's good. Um, I'm sixty-one now. I said like what Arlene, your correspondent, said. Actually, I think it's not a time for turning things down; it's a time for turning things up. 
In what way? Because we do often have physical limitations. And as you said, we can have intellectual limitations. And in what way would you think of turning things up? Do the things that you enjoy and find rewarding and nourish you and challenge you to the best of your ability. Don't you know, just embrace life, the bits of it that still come to you, and take what you need to do, remedial measures, to ensure that you can do that without having to scramble the air ambulance more than, you know, once. So what are the things that, that nourish you then and you find rewarding then at this stage of life? Well, travel. Um, so going to lots of places, places I've always wanted to go. Travelling with the comforts, if all things being equal, if you've been fortunate enough to earn a decent living, the comforts that come with that. Best thing is spending time with people I love and care about. And my friend Johnny is one of my best friends. We've known each other since we were in our 20s. And we were both 60. So we mark this by having a sleeper train tour of the continent. Mm, fantastic. Such a laugh, I cannot tell you. So sleeper train, very comfortable. We ate in very nice restaurants. We had a lovely time. We stayed in very nice hotels. And I just thought, I don't think anyone could have lived a life that was more fun than what we were doing then. Yeah, lovely. How As much fun if you had been doing it when you were 25. More fun, because when I was 25, I was full of self-doubt and anxiety and competitiveness and ambition and all that. And I'm not now. And uh, one of the things I love about the quality of relationships in my 60s is that I don't feel I'm in competition with people particularly. I don't feel jealous or envious of stuff. I just really like people. I like them not being like me. My friend who I went with, he's... Uh, we think completely oppositely, opposite about most things. Mm. And there was a time when we used to rage and rage and rage and argue and argue. And now I'm just interested in what he thinks and it challenges what I think and it doesn't feel that that threatens the end of the world. You know? mm. So when you were 25 then, what were you like then? I'm looking at that other tweet that I mentioned from your niece, Christ Uncle Tricky, if your younger self could see you now. Well, I was very, 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 very right on, of course. Mm -hmm. I was a combatant in the front line of the battle to create a more generous and equitable world for gay people. I was absolutely certain that Margaret mm. Thatcher was embodiment of evil and all our resources should be mobilised to bring her down. Life was clear in some ways, I think. And also I was in a pop band that was doing really well. I was fortunate to work with Jimmy Samuel, a spectacularly talented person. So I was not only turbocharged, I was also had the opportunity to do it on quite a big stage, I suppose. And I hadn't yet got to that point where the paradoxes of life, those things that you subscribe to most passionately, start to collide a little bit with the data of life. Mm. I hadn't quite got to that bit yet. In my 30s, I started having to compute that, I suppose. But, you know, this is all just what happens, isn't it? Everybody does this. Yeah, it is a fairly typical pattern, isn't it? That, you know, in our younger years, we're very um, kind of definite and absolutist and passionate and fired up. And then, you know, we we have other experiences. We meet up against different um, influences and we kind of soften a bit. And then sometimes we harden again yeah. and become... Do you find that? Well, I think I probably... I'm having to acknowledge in my early 60s that I have moved in a direction that quite rightly would depress my niece. Mm. Because, I mean, sometimes I've moved to the right, but I think that's probably what I've done. I don't like the sound of that. But I have moved to the right. I think I just find that I, lots of things I think now 
would be center, say, right. I'm a Blairite monarchist. I think that's the truth. Now, the Overton window has shifted, so I don't know where that puts me in regards to left, right, center. But I think up until the Iraq war, I thought the Tony Blair administration was brilliant and dazzling. And also, I quite like enduring institutions that in spite of seeming like anomalies in a modern democracy, nevertheless, seem to add something to our life that is good and positive. And it doesn't all add up and it's not neat and tidy. But I kind of think that's where I'm at, really. I get so, so bollocked by my niece. I describe someone as fat. Mm. And that wouldn't go down very well at all. No, I'd stick with corpulent because it sounds clever and it's the same thing. Well, (laughs) um, it was just one of those words that's become unsayable in in a generation, I think. I think you're right. My niece keeps me on my toes. I'm going about, we're going off to Scotland together actually at the end of the month. So I get, and for all my nieces and nephews and their boyfriends and girlfriends, we're all going to Kintyre and I'll have a week of being shouted at for not being sufficiently right on. It is a really interesting thing, though, isn't it? I mean, Karen, you and I have discussed this as well, because I, when, when I was in my 20s, you know, at university, and we're kind of all the same age, um, and I always got on very well with my mum, but, you know, there was lots of occasions that I would say, mum, you can't say that, and mum, for goodness sake, oh, for God's sake, mum, and I'd be rolling my eyes and, you know, say, oh, she's so blooming last century. And to now be in that situation mm. and have a younger generation, you know, refer to you in that way, it's a shocker, isn't it? Well, it's quite, it's as it should be, of course. And the other thing you have to remember is that you must resist the temptation to just assume that you're right and they're wrong because they're too callow or inexperienced and know something. Because they definitely know stuff we don't know. We should keep an ear out for that. But the other thing is, on, on Sunday, I went for lunch with some friends and the kids of, of some friends who were there, I've known since they were babies. And I realized we've been going for lunch this place with these friends for 30 years now. And they're all pushing 30. Mm-hmm. And they've all got careers and they're getting married. And I realized that we're not the center of the story anymore. It was all about us. And now all of a sudden, it's actually all about them. And I felt like the Dowager Lady Grantham sitting at the edge of the ballroom watching the young people do a polka. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, and not an uncomfortable feeling, a rather nice feeling. But it's just amazing how quickly things change. And, yeah. and I think you sometimes you just need to have something remind you that you are not the person you were, that you are not the centre of the universe, and that you maybe need to just not allow yourself to lapse into complacent habits or something. This is all, I sound so fucking virtuous. Yeah. I'm a lazy slob. Who watches I think television. what you do become, though, is the top of the blinking tree, don't you? Oh, God, way, yeah. Which way? Oh, because your parents have gone. Yeah. And then you're the one at the top, and it's like, oh, God, I'm the oldest one now. It's, it's kind of next generation is me to kind of fall off the edge. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely know what I mean. You know you got shot on by a pigeon. <laughs> oh, I kind of remember that. It was only a few days ago, yes. Well, happened to me for the first time last year in Kintyre, only it was a herring girl. Well, that uh, was a ton of weight, was it? Oh, God. So we were watching this light aircraft coming to land at Macrahanish. And my sister-in-law, Julia, said to me, God, would it be awful if they emptied their toilet ah! just as they flew ahead? Because, you know, you hear that story. That's what they do on place. And at that very moment, a herring girl didn't so much shit on us as kind of splash us with fish-scented shite. <laughs> it was really bad. It was oh, so bad. It was so bad. We didn't think we'd be able to get home in the car. 
Oh it was only my. 10 miles to it. So before to the nearest washing machine, it was so gross. So it wasn't just you, it got the entire party. The whole party. Yeah, we'd just been to see Top Gun Maverick in the wee picture house in Campbelltown. And um, that was bad enough for my brother, who thinks the sort of celebration of the American military industrial complex is not his idea of a night out. <laughs> but, uh, but I enjoyed it because I like, I like fifth generation fighter jets. Don't get me started. Anyway, we ended up getting shited on by a herring girl. <laughs> well, see, like I say, it's the benefit of grey hair. You just comb it in. It's absolutely fine. Absolutely yeah. fine. I do quite, nothing I like about being in my 60s is I don't mind if things go wrong. So if I weed myself the other day, uh, and it's kind of embarrassing, but, you know, so what? People weed themselves, don't they? You deal with it. You sort it. We're all in the same boat, aren't we? So I don't worry about things like that. Loss of face or kind of wearing socks with sandals. If I want to wear socks with sandals, I'm going to wear socks with sandals. And if people don't like it, they can do one. But see, so you, you're obviously signed up to the church of Sister Arlene who got in touch with us, you know, with her aha and the hmm. acceptance. And you were talking about being on the, the fringes. I got that last year, actually. I was at my niece's wedding and I realised that I was on the, the old auntie's table. <laughs> You know, and that's that but was hey, Kay, one you, you... <laughs> that's the fun table. Well, yes, and it was fun actually. It, it was fun, um, but there are some people when they get to this age that don't want to accept that. And I mean, we have this big conversation at the moment, don't we? And you know, people talk usually about white elderly men, and I, I take you know, I apologise, but that whole <laughs> I am one. So pale male, and I'm stale. Well, that's it. But there are certain people of that demographic who don't want to accept, who feel very angry that yeah. there is the younger generation coming up and they're no longer so relevant and no longer so listened to. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I mean, you have your prime at different times of life, don't you? I mean, I youth was a bit wasted on me, really, because I was always an old man waiting to happen, I think. And now I'm, well, not an old man, I'm a 61-year-old man. I feel I'm absolutely hitting my stride now, actually. Uh, whereas I've got friends who had extraordinarily fun-filled shagathons in their 20s and 30s, and the years have taken their toll, and they're still perfectly charming and desirable people as far as I'm concerned, but I think they feel that they've had their fun now. I'm just amazed at how much fun there is to have ahead. It's great. Surely you must have had fun as a pop star in your 20s. I suppose I did, but I was so angst-ridden, okay? I don't think I really enjoyed it that much. My one regret, real, you know, well, not my one regret, but I think the regret I feel most pressing now is that I didn't have more sex when I was in my 20s. Mm. That I didn't, it's not just I didn't have more sex, it was that I, for nerve, reasons of nervousness or lack of confidence or something, I didn't embark on a fling with a person who was hoping to embark on a fling with me, and I just missed that boat, and I just wish I hadn't now. Mind you, I probably would be dead because I suppose I would have most likely have yeah. become infected with HIV at a time when that was not something people could cure. So where did the angst come from then? Oh, I think uh, like lots of gay men of my age and background, I was a bit traumatised by that growing up and felt that I was probably undesirable. Um, I was swatty and nerdy and I wanted to be handsome and debonair and I wasn't. And I think I internalised a lot of negative, you know, if you were growing up gay in those days, it would, it felt, it didn't feel like a great thing to be. 
or the prospect of it, and it's very great to be. And I think I internalised all of that stuff, and it took me a while to sort it out. Really, what age were you when you came out? Sixteen. It's young. Yeah. yeah, it was Kettering though. Yeah. Was it a difficult decision to come out? How were your family with that? I mean, I guess a lot of men of our age didn't come out for a long time. Well, it wasn't difficult in the sense that I knew I had to do it. So I, I didn't know, I didn't, I didn't I'm an eye of whether it was the right thing to do. I knew it was the right thing to do. Whether it was a sensible thing to do, I wasn't sure about that, but I didn't want to live dishonestly in that way. And I didn't want to be unhappy and I didn't want to be feel I had this dark secret that I needed to conceal from people and... So I thought, well, I'm not doing that. So I bought a gay news in the bus station in Swansea, and I've plucked up courage to go in there, not one of my usual horns. And um, it was held on a big bulldog clip, and I pulled one down. And at that moment, about 20 people walked into the news agents as every copy of gay news in South Wales descended onto the floor in a very obvious way. And I had to gather them all together with the news agent making a bit of a fuss, thinking, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And I bought my gay news, and that was the first time I'd actually done something, I think, to connect with my future life. Given that I think you were born into, you know, a, a pretty comfortable background, you were a chorister, you went to, to public school... If you hadn't have been gay, well, obviously your life would have been different, but you would have made very different choices, I would imagine. I think I would have ended up like Mr. Chips or someone. I would have ended up like a schoolmaster uh, who wore his mortarboard in his gown and was discovered dead one day under the Daily Telegraph in the senior common room, <laughs> maybe been dead for maybe two years. And I'd have been genial and I'd have been full of Latin quips. And I think that would have probably been me. Not a bad thing to be, but... <laughs> It was sexuality that got me out of that, sexuality that drove me out of my life and into a new life. It took me to London and opened up the world to me. But then you described yourself a few times as a sweaty, nerdy boy. Yeah. And and there's nothing wrong with that. But if no. that is the essence of you, then how did that sweaty, nerdy boy fit into the to music scene? I mean, Jimmy Summerville... All oh, right. I mean, I don't know Jimmy Summerville, but I know he's from Rock Hill in Glasgow. So, well, no. I mean, Jimmy and I would never have encountered each other. I don't think had it not been for our sexuality, which drove us. You know, me out of a middle class, Middle England background, and Jimmy out of a working class background in very sectarian life in Glasgow. And we came to London and met each other, and absolutely delighted in each other because we were so different. But we had this one thing in common: was that we wanted to find a livable life, and that we thought the world was unjust and could do with a you know, a change. And so we were absolutely committed to that. And we were sort of comrades, really, and the most unlikely friends. Mm. Um, and I learned an awful lot from Jimmy. He was very exciting. You know, just turned out also to be one of the most talented singers of his generation. Maybe it's the, the opposite thing, I don't know. Lots of my closest friends are working class Glaswegians. But what do you think that is then? Well, maybe it's opposites attract in some ways. Maybe. I was thinking about this with my friend who's and I thought, why do he and I get on so well? We've known each other a lot of time. We're deeply, deeply close. And yet we're deeply, deeply different. And I thought, I'm an Apollonian and he's a Dionysian. 
But there's an Apollonian in him and a Dionysian in me. Right, can I stop you right there? (laughs) (laughs) What the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) Well, an Apollonian painting broad brushstrokes would be someone who was cerebral, who lived the life of the mind and the spirit. And a Dionysian is someone who likes wine, women and song. Right. And and we have lived our lives according to our callings. But in me, there's a Dionysian that's struggling to get out, and in him there's an Apollonian that's struggling to get out. And I think we see in each other something which answers that need. I don't know, cod psychology. It's it's so interesting that you say that. Karen's now furiously Googling, I can just tell you. I'm going to try and use that when I go home to Stephen. (laughs) (laughs) He recognises that I'm a Dionysian or a a (laughs) Apollonian or whatever the hell it was. (laughs) You were saying that you were kind of not a bad pop star, but an uneasy pop star. You know what my nephew said? Go on. When he was about 15, first aware that the adults in his life have backstory. Hmm. And he said to me, he said, Uncle Tricky, Uncle Tricky. And I said, yeah. And he said, were you a pop star? <laughs> and I said, yeah. And he said, well, a real pop star? And I said, yeah. And he, anyway, he got YouTube and he looked up the communards video on YouTube. And he started kind of nodding along, approvingly. And I thought, it's going well. And he went, oh, it's really good. That's really cool. I said, thanks, Holly. Then he said, but even then, you could tell there was a vicar struggling to get out. Oh, my God, how funny. <laughs> but he's right. I look at myself now and I think, why is that vicar pretending to be a pop star? So did you have a strong faith at that point? What, no. Was that, no? No, I mean, I, I, I was always an atheist from the age of eight. I was absolutely convinced, 100% card-carrying atheist. I started the school chapel choir atheist club because I was certain of one thing. Was that religion was a fairy tale and no one in his right mind could live by that. What journey did you take then? For me, I think one of the consequences of the HIV epidemic was, you know, I had to have been like lots of people, mortality came to us sooner than it does to most people. So in my 20s and my 30s, a lot of the people who I loved and cared about died. And maybe that was, I can remember in all that turbulence, you see, when I was a chorister, I didn't believe any of it, but I liked being a chorister. I liked being in chapel. I liked being in the cathedral. I liked the music. I liked, I liked something about it just seemed to speak to me and offer something that was unique and distinctive. And then when, in my late 20s, when all that stuff was going on and I felt this real turbulence, I wanted to connect with it again. And at first I thought it was just sentimental nonsense. And then I thought it was curiosity. And then it was an appetite, and then it became a hunger. Then I realized I had to connect with it again. The minute I did, I realized it had been waiting for me forever. Why did you give up being a, a vicar? I mean, I guess there wouldn't be any age pressure. No, I think our retirement age is now 110. Um, <laughs> uh, well, I gave it up. I didn't, I mean, I missed it terribly. I loved being a vicar. But after David died, I knew I had to find a new life to lead, actually. And also, I got fed up with the whole the sort of permanent aggro from the issue of uh, with the gay people's relationships. I was having to put up with feeling the humiliation that my relationships and my identity was not something that was equal in dignity to other people's, and I found that unbearable in the end. And it hurt David, and it hurt me, and it hurts other people, and I thought, I'm just not doing this anymore. And also, thanks to my brilliant manager from Pop Music Days, I got a pension, which enabled me to give up. Mm. Can we talk about David a bit? Is that all right? Yeah, of course. I mean, I I did see somewhere you saying, and it's absolutely true, the vast majority of us will face widow or widowerhood at some point, you know, as as we get older. Chances are roughly 50-50. Yeah, obviously. 
So when you said there, you kind of had to plan a new life. Did yeah. it feel like when, when David died? Well, at first I was just wiped out by it. So um, I don't know how you got through a day, do all sorts of mad things. But then lockdown happened. So I had enforced kind of solitude of lockdown with the world stopping. And actually that was quite good for me. I think I would have just worked and worked or done something to avoid the inevitable, which is I have to deal with this new reality. So I walked with dogs and I cooked a lot. I went out on my bike and I just couldn't read. I couldn't watch telly. I didn't have any concentration. And I just began to get used to another 24 hours of David not being alive in the world. And as I got used to it, I began to think. At first I thought, well, I will just sit here and cherish and treasure his memory. And then after what I realised... I don't want to spend the rest of my life sitting next to the Argus, stirring polenta in a black shawl. It's a good look. It's a strong look. Don't get me wrong. But I didn't want to do that. And I thought, well, I've got to find some new life. And so I began to think about how I might do that. His picture's on my desk right now, again, looking at me as I speak. Um, so I began to think about where it might be and what it might be. I thought I was now done and dusted with any intimate relationship or romantic thing. And then I met someone just at Christmas, and now I am stepping out with a gentleman. So in three years, three and a half years, there's been a big reboot. I'm living in a different place. I'm doing different things. Then I've started seeing someone, and that's that's really good, actually. I just never – I did not think that would ever happen again. Mm. Because when someone dies – you feel a sense of guilt, do you, that that you don't want to even consider someone else? Or, I, I mean, I don't know. I've not been in that situation. Well, yeah, I mean, I just desperately, desperately wanted to hang on to David as much as I could, so hanging on to his memory. So when I felt that anything that wasn't optimised to cherish his memory was a... I would be letting him down, I think, and his mum down and his brothers down, and we were very close. And also he died of alcoholism, so... His death was awful. I mean, all death is awful, but this was especially awful because he died as a consequence of an addiction. And living with someone with an addiction is not a walk in the park. So there was quite a lot of stuff in that that was difficult to you know, handle and remember. And anyway, I started um, I saw a bereavement therapist after a while, and she's been great. I realized I think now it's like a bear that's hibernating. And I just slowly began to wake up and thought, mm, I fancy a seal. So I borrowed my way out of my bear hole and I met a seal. <laughs> How does it feel to be waking up? Really good. You know, often if you go through a tough patch in life, you just get through the day, don't you? You don't realise quite how messed up it is. Only when you begin to emerge would you look back and you think, blimey, that was a hard, stony path, and it was. Um, and then all of a sudden... You know, the lights come on a bit, the colours intensify, you smell things, and you see there's a world out there with all its promise and challenges, and you think, yeah. Here's an odd thing about meeting a new person. Most of the people in my life, my closest friends, are family to me, really. We've known each other for 40 years. I haven't got 40 years to devote to somebody else or to uncover stuff about them, so you kind of cut to the chase. So me and Dickie, my new bloke, he's got his own history too. We have to sort of find a sort of shorthand for that stuff because we simply haven't got time to get it all in the bank, if you see what I mean. So it's interesting. And I said the other day, I think our legs have taken us further than our journey ought to have gone because it's just faster because we haven't got time mm. and because 
you know, we're heading in the same direction. We know where we want to go. So we're shifting along nicely. How did you meet? We met on a dating app mm-hmm. with the worst name, maybe the second worst name of any dating app in the world. Grinder, I think, is the worst name for any dating app. <laughs> Grinding to me just means arthritis, not sex now. Um, so it's called Elite Singles. Oh, it sounds very 1970s. Elite singles. The reason was I didn't want to be anyone's sugar daddy and I didn't want to run around with rent boys particularly. No disrespect to rent boys, but not what I was looking for. I wanted someone who was a grown-up and someone who had their own life. And uh, Dickie, he was my third go. Did you go for another opposite? No, I went for someone unlike anyone I've ever gone out. In fact, somebody said to me, it's the first time in your life you've ever gone out with someone who's like you. So he's an actor. He's called Richard Kant. He's an actor, a very brilliant actor. And um, he's lovely. He's great. He's a lovely, lovely man. The first time I went to see him in his show, he was in drag playing Virginia Woolf in Orlando. And then the next time I went to see him in the show, he was dressed up like Quentin Crisp. So he was just gradually getting slightly butcher with each performance. I'm imagining in a year or two he'll be playing Rocky. (laughs) You know, this is probably me just trying to tie this up with a bow, but given this is how to be 60, and you've said this, Richard, earlier on, um, you know, when we're younger, we're looking for a tribe, aren't we? We kind of find the people that we feel right with, we dress the same, we like the same music, etc. And then we go, we develop, and then you sort different people. I I think I've sought different people in my life. That's found right for me. But then here you are at 60, 61 or whatever, and you're with somebody like you. Yeah, Well, not entirely like me. He likes no. rice cakes. That's not happening. Oh, really. okay, okay. God, Fair enough, deal breaker. But do you know what it means? Do you think that means you've found you? Yeah, I think there might be something in that. Well, I think perhaps I'm looking for someone who I can share my I love sharing. I love sharing my life with David, and it was sometimes very difficult because of his illness. But I'd love to share my life with someone. And Dickie and I like the same sorts of things very often. With David, it was very difficult because I like football and he hated football. So if I got match of the day, I had to give him two ugly betties as a sort of pre quick <laughs> Um But Dickie doesn't like football either. In fact, he said, to, I'm an Arsenal fan, he said to me the other day, is Spurs Arsenal? No, no, really not. <laughs> um, but he's, he's sat through a football game, watched it a couple of times, and he's interested in it because he's an actor, he's interested in the bodies and the placing in space on the field and stuff. So I'm hoping that before very long, he might um, be my date for a trip to the Emirates. When did you start to write? Well, I've always written. You've always written. Yeah, and I started writing, I wrote nonfiction, about six or seven of them. And then I wanted to write a crime novel. And so my my publisher said, well, go on then, have a go. And I did. And it did very well, and I'm writing, I've written the second one, and I'm in the middle of a third one now. So it's a series of novels about mm. a fictional detective clergyman, rector, a Daniel Clement, Canon Daniel Clement, rector of Chanton St. Mary, set in the 1980s in a village which has now got a higher murder rate than Midsummer, I think. <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds like that. <laughs> Do you, what is the fascination with, sorry. with crime and murder? I think it's offers. It's very interesting. I was talking the other day to a bloke at the British Library who's got a thing on crime fiction, and he said there was a huge flourishing of crime fiction in the 1930s. And he says it's because people were sensing that the world was full of, it was getting darker, more difficult and frightening. And that produces anxiety, and crime fiction earths anxiety. 
something happens, everything goes wrong, and somebody fixes it, and it all goes right. And I think it speaks to our anxieties, really. And I wonder if we're not in a similar similar time in history now. I don't know. <laughs> so just before we do our big six old bingo, how do you now feel about this next stage of your life? Great. I think it's a golden age. That's lovely. Right. Pick. I'm going to call you Rich. Go on. <laughs> I'm trying to choose a number, Rich. <laughs> Between one oh, and sixty. One and sixty, yeah. Eleven. Eleven. It's my favourite number. Is it really? Yeah. Mm. Um, is blood really thicker than water? That's a really good question. I mean, I think my temptation would be to say yes, but then, I mean, I have my blood family, and I love my blood family, but I have my elective family too. They're the people I went through the wars with in the nineteen eighties, and you know, they are to me like brothers and sisters. Although I've shagged some of them, so you know, not exactly like my brothers and sisters. Um, I don't know. I'd have to say I'm not sure about that. Mm. Actually, I love when I'm with my brothers. We talk about stuff that only we can talk about because we were there. And although our memory is not always the same, we were there. Okay, give us another number. Forty-three. Forty-three. If you could have a million pounds in cash and another ten years. Or another 20 years and no cash, what would you opt for? 20 years and no cash. As long as I'm healthy, can I have good health? Go on then. You've been very good. 20 years and no cash. <laughs> no uh, easy, easy, easy million to turn down or 10 million to turn down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I was talking to a friend who's a young guy and he was saying how much he kind of looked at me and thought how much he wished he had, the resources I have the life I have, the house I have, the stuff I have. And I said, I'd give it all for your knees. <laughs> well, knees are a thing, aren't they? Aren't they? Why? God, especially when you reach 60. Um, Richard, thank you. It's really been so lovely speaking to you. My pleasure. Lovely to talk to you. Ah, the pleasure was all ours. That was the loveliest hour speaking to Richard. Next week, we're joined by Mariella Frostrup, who's got some surprises of her own. Mm-hmm.